Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And if you are a guest, we welcome you and we hope that you enjoy the class and you'll come back. We hope you felt welcome and uh, get involved. Okay, Luke chapter 9, we're going down verse by verse. After today, we'll be about 40% through the Gospel of Luke, which is very interesting. And uh, let me simply give you a summary statement that at this point, Jesus' popularity is growing, and the crowds are getting larger, and in some senses, the crowds are beginning to hinder Jesus' ability to minister because they are pressing in on him, so he is enlisting the apostles to uh, share the load. Now, he's already called the 12 apostles, but so far they've just watched Jesus do the ministry. Now they're going to start doing the ministry, okay? So let's look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. Then he called his 12 apostles together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. Now we know that in the past, Jesus said that he was going to make the apostles fishers of men. That's what he said he was planning to do. Make them fishers of men. Now he's going to do it. And what you're going to see in these first two verses, you're going to see three verbs. Look at verse number one. Verb number one. He called them. He meets with them privately. He separates them from the crowd. He gets off and he meets with them privately. Verb number one, he called them. Second, right there in verse one, he gave them, look, he gave them what? Power and authority. Power, that's God's power. Authority, that's God's authority to act on his behalf. So he gives them God's power, he gives them God's authority, which means that since it's being given to them, it's delegated authority. They don't have it themselves, they don't possess it innately. It has to be passed on, and he gives them power, God's power, and God's authority to speak and act on God's behalf. He gives them power and authority, in verse 1 it says, over demons and to cure diseases. Now, very interestingly, de demons and diseases are what keep people in bondage. So he gives them power to set these people free. He gives them authority to set these people free. If he gives them power, he's giving them resources. See, I can meet sick people and I might not have the resources to heal them. So he gives them power or resources to deal with these issues. And then he gives them authority or the right to deal with these problems. The right to deal with the problems. The authority to deal with these problems. Which means he's given them uh, the power of attorney to deal with these problems. If I gave you the authority to pay off my mortgage. That means that you would have the right to act on my behalf because I've delegated that authority to you. Then if I gave you a cashier's check, 
to pay it off, you would then have the resources to do it. So you need two things. You need the authority, the power of attorney to act on behalf of God to a group of lost people out in this world that are under all kinds of bondage. But then you need God's resources, and Jesus gives them the right and the resources to do these things. That's very important. And then the third verb is found in verse 2. He sent them to preach. That means to speak on God's behalf. Look at the content. They were to preach the kingdom of God. They were to say God's ready to restore things. In the kingdom, everything's going to be restored. And guess what? He's going to start restoring people right now. He's going to take the bondage away from people, the things that are oppressing them, and they're going to be restored and reconciled to God and be freed from this. So he sent them, first of all, to speak on God's behalf, and second of all, to act on God's behalf. Look what it says at the end of verse 2. To heal the sick. Now, in verse 1 it said, authority over demons and to cure diseases. In verse 2 he says, heal the sick. So heal the sick is sort of like an umbrella term. It takes in both the diseases and it takes in the demons. If, you are extra, if a demon is exercised from you, you, can be, you can, it can be said that you've been healed. Okay? You've been healed from your sickness. If you're cured of a disease, you're healed from your sickness. Now, the next thing he does, beginning in verse 3, is he gives them instructions. Okay? And he's going to give them three instructions. Look at the first instruction he gives them in verse 3. He said to them, number one, take nothing for your journey. In other words, when he sends them out, take nothing for your journey. Neither staffs. You know what a shepherd's staff is? That usually when people were walking down the road, they had a staff and they weren't shepherds. They were using it for protection. Don't take a knife. Don't take a gun. Don't take a staff. You don't need man's protection in this case. You're to trust God for your protection. Nor bag, nor a knapsack. Don't have extra supplies with you. You say, well, what am I going to do? How about if I have this happens or that? Well, you trust God. Amen. That's what he says here. Nor bread. Don't take any food with you. Yeah, but I'm going to have to eat tonight. What am I going to do when I'm on the road? Trust God. Amen. Okay? Nor money. Now, we can add today, no more credit card. <laughs> and do not have two tunics apiece. Don't take any extra clothes with you. Don't even take a change of clothes. Now, a tunic was the piece of garment that was under the robe. We call it underwear. Don't even take a change of underwear with you. We could be so crude, but that's, that's the... Uh, the, the gist of what he's saying. So he's saying, don't even take enough food for the day. Don't take any, an extra change of clothes. Don't take a knapsack. Don't take your credit card. Don't worry about protection. In other words, this is a faith venture. You need to trust that God will provide for you. Now this is instruction number one. Look at instruction number two, found in verse four. And whatever house you enter, because he's going to send them to different cities, Whatever house you enter, stay there. Notice that phrase, stay there, and from there 
depart. In other words, don't jump from house to house. When you go on the mission trip and someone opens the door and says, well, why don't you stay with us tonight? Stay there. If better accommodations become available, don't jump ship. Just stay where someone shows you the hospitality. Now we discover how they're going to be taken care of. God will lay it on certain people's hearts to show hospitality to you when you're out there doing God's work. So don't hunt for better accommodations. Now, you go wherever someone opens the door. Now, let me say this to you. That when you do this, sometimes you'll get great accommodations. When I went on the mission trip, took a group of students to Atlanta, Georgia, and we were going to work the streets and the trailer parks, and I was in a professional football player's house, multi-million dollar house. That was a great facility. The lives in that house were a mess. I thought I was in the Hilton Hotel, but guess what? I was in the middle of a battleground between a man and his wife. A guy who hadn't grown up yet, was still acting like a teenager, and had all these buddies over the house all the time. Talking football and watching television and goofing around and having parties and cookouts and... And then, when I went to St. Louis, a person opened their door to the students and myself, and the people who invited me into their house put me in a little room under the stairwell. It didn't even have a door, it had a curtain. And about 10 feet away, there was the family room. Now, this is a row house. This is not a new house. This is a row house, probably 100 years old. And I was under the stairwell with one little bed against the one wall, an outside wall, and they were in there watching the St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. And there was nothing between us except a curtain. That was miserable. But they made sure there was food on the table for breakfast, and they took care of my needs. And this is what Jesus is saying when he sends his disciples out, the twelve out. He says, this is a faith venture. Take nothing, instruction number one. Number two, Whatever door's open to you, you go and you stay in that house and don't jump ship for better accommodation. Instruction number three, verse five. And whoever will not receive you, which means welcome you, and he means by this, if you go into a city and no one in the city opens the door to you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, the shaking the dust off of your feet is what a person would usually do after they were walking the road and uh, they would go into a house, they would shake the dust off. They would clean off the dust because you'd been, your feet had been defiled. It was a defilement. It was dirt. But here, you're not getting the defilement off of you. He says, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He's saying they are defiled, and you need to shake the dust of their village right off of your feet. This is a judgment statement. So if you go out and you minister, and no one meets your needs, then God will judge them. And this is sort of a, an act of judgment by shaking the dust. It's pronouncing judgment on those people. So we have those three instructions. Now, in verse 6, we have a summary statement. And so they departed, and they went through the towns, notice plural, 
speaking for God, preaching the gospel, acting for God, healing everywhere, which means casting out demons and curing diseases. And so guess what? The power must have worked. He gave them the authority to do it, and they went and did it, and he gave them the resources to do it, and they did it. So that's a summary statement. Now, in verse 7, we have a little interlude, and it sort of gives us a result of what this trip produced. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him. And this means and his disciples that he had sent out, because they had delegated authority. Herod the Tetrarch is the uh, son of King Herod. Remember King Herod who built the great big temple? Uh, he had died, and his all of the Palestinian area was divided by his four sons. It was divided into four. And this is one of his sons, and this is the son that imprisoned John the Baptist. And he is in charge of the region of Galilee, which is a northern part of Israel, and that's where Jesus and the disciples are ministering. So when he hears of all that was done, in other words... The healings and the exorcisms and the crowds and everything that's going on. And he was perplexed. He said, what in the world's going on here? Now, why was he perplexed? Now, watch this. He was perplexed because it was said by some that John, that's John the Baptist, had risen from the dead. That's the first time we know that this is the first indication that we have in Luke's gospel that John's been put to death. The last time we left John, he was in prison, still alive, questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah. But now we discover that John has been put to death. And this is the man that put him to death. And so, evidently, all these healings are going on and these miracles are happening and Herod learns about it and he's perplexed. It's causing commotion in his region where he rules and he has to get this thing under control lest things get out of hand. And somebody says, oh, we know what's happening. John the Baptist has come back to life. And he's scratching his head. And he's, John the Baptist has come back to life? That's perplexing. That's, what it says. That's why he's perplexed. And look at verse 8. He was perplexed because others said that Elijah had appeared. That's Elijah doing these things, the prophet Elijah. Well, the Jews believed that before the Messiah would come, Elijah must appear. And so they, some people say, yeah, maybe that's the Elijah before Messiah comes. You know, Messiah's going to be king. Well, when the king comes, guess what Herod had? Out of a job. So that would cause him some concern. So he's perplexed over that. Well, is he Elijah? And others, look what they said into verse 8 that one of the old prophets had risen again. Uh, that means an Old Testament-like prophet. God is now restoring prophets on the scene, and a, and a prophet like, like unto Moses has come. Uh, one of these Old Testament-like prophets has come on the scene, and so he is really perplexed about what's happening, but he knows he has to get things under control. So look what he says in verse 9. Herod said, John, I've beheaded. Well, I know it's not him. I've beheaded that guy. I'm going to get that one out of the way real quick. He wasn't superstitious. 
But, very important question. It's not John, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to meet Jesus. Later on, Herod will be involved in Jesus' death. Herod and Pilate get together and they have a discussion after Jesus' arrest. And remember, Herod uh, wants to see, he meets Jesus and says to Pilate, I'd like to have a little meeting with Jesus. And he does meet with Jesus at the end of the gospel. And he asks Jesus, he said, I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. How about doing um, a miracle for me? Let me see a little miracle. And Jesus Christ Superstar. Remember that play? Herod asked the question. He says, will you walk across my swimming pool for me? He wants to see a miracle. That was a blasphemous play, but I thought I'd throw that in anyway. <laughs> now, uh, in verse 10, he picks right up from verse 6. That's why I said verse 7 through 9 is sort of like an interlude. So, in verse 6, we have a summary statement. They departed. They went through the town preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In verse 10, we sort of pick up with the story. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. They began to just give him all these reports of the miraculous things they had done, and they were shocked. And don't you remember in one of the other Gospels, they said, even the demons were subject to us. <coughs> and Jesus went, well, that's pretty good, but... Uh, let me tell you, you shouldn't be so excited about that. You should be excited that your name is written down in the book of life. Remember that? So they tell Jesus all that they had done about the demons and the, and the healings and all those kinds of things. And then it says in verse 10, Then he took them and he went aside privately into the desert, maybe to pray, maybe to, to get the full report for a debriefing, to a deserted place belonging to the city called Beth Seda. And so Jesus wants to get them away again, and he goes off and they retreat, and uh, he wants to get to report, maybe pray with them, explain what was going on in their lives and how all this thing happened and all that. But, verse 11, when the multitudes knew it, when the crowds found out, they followed him. They went outside the city, out into the countryside, and he received them. He welcomed them. And he spoke to them about, look at this, the kingdom of God, and he healed those who had need of healing. So, uh, the same thing that he sent his disciples out to do, guess what? He's doing it. And he welcomed them. This was an interruption. He wanted to get off by himself and with the twelve. He's interrupted. His plans are put on hold. And guess what? He doesn't get frustrated. Now, I get frustrated when my plans are interrupted. I don't know about you. Maybe you're not like that. But when, when I have plans and then there's a phone call or then somebody interrupts or then that aggravates me. It doesn't aggravate Jesus one bit. He's got things together. He is emotionally stable and assured of himself. So uh, he received them. It says he, he, he welcomed them in verse 12, uh, 11. Now look at verse 12. This is very interesting. 
Now when the day began to wear away, the twelve came to him and said, Send the multitudes away! Now I just said it that way. I don't know if they said it that way. Now, let me read it just normal. They said to him, Send the multitudes away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions. For we are in a deserted place. We're out in the country. But he said to them, Will you give them something to eat? Now, do you see what's happening here? Should I walk you through what's happening? If we, if we summarize what's going on, remember what happened? He sent them out, and he told them to take what with them? Nothing, nothing with them, right? Nothing with them. No bread, no money, nothing. But, except hospitality. Depend on somebody else to take care of their needs. And so, by faith, they go out and they do it. Now, in this verse, the tables are turned. The tables are reversed. Here's a group of Jesus followers, a large group of Jesus followers. They have nothing to eat. They have no place to stay. Jesus welcomes them, but what do the disciples do? Huh? They reject them. They don't offer them hospitality. Now, they were in the same boat just a few days before. Did they get their needs met? Yes. How? Because someone showed them hospitality. Somebody welcomed them into their home. Now, what do these guys do? Just the opposite. It's amazing when you see this. See, uh, I don't understand it, but it shows you how short our memories are and how we do not do what we are supposed to to do. If they had gone out and they entered a town and no one showed them hospitality in that town, what were they to do? Now the apostles are acting the same way. And guess what they deserve? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We see ourselves here. Remember in the parable that Dr. Jeffers talked about a few weeks ago about the man who forgave a debt, a large debt, and then the guy who had his debt forgiven didn't forgive others who had the debt? <laughs> and Jesus in the parable says that man's going to be judged. You know, forgive us our debts as we forgive others their debts. So here are a group of men who received hospitality, and now they don't show hospitality. It's an amazing thing when you see it. So, he said, well, give them something to eat, verse 13. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for these people. And there are about 5,000 of them. We don't have a great place for you to stay. We have a, a little room under the stairwell. I'd say you need a lot. But you need to have a heart. And 
They start making excuses. Well, all we have are five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for these people, that means we'd have to actually dole some money out. And there are about 5,000 of them. Now, where's their faith? It's amazing when he sent them out, they could exhibit faith for themselves that someone would meet their needs. But now someone else has a need and they don't have a faith to meet that need. Have these people forgotten they're with, they're with Jesus? Have we forgotten Jesus is with us? He says, love, I'm with you always. Amen. Have they forgotten that when they didn't make any catch during the night, Jesus said, throw your net on the other side and... There were so many fish they couldn't pull them in. Had they forgotten the feeding of the Israelites with manna from heaven? Where's their faith now? They had faith before for themselves. Why don't they have faith this time? If God did it before, can he do it again? Of course he can. So look what Jesus does. In the middle of verse 14. He said to his disciples, make them sit in groups of 50. And they did so. And they made them all sit down. And so here we have organization. You say, okay, here's what I want you to do. We have 5,000 people here. I want you to start counting them up. One, two, three, four. Still count down. 50. You go sit over here. 50. You sit over here. 50. You sit over there. Okay? And I want you to get about 100 of those little groups. And so just start organizing. Now, the word 50 is very important in Old Testament. I don't want to get too super symbolic here, but 50 was the year of Jubilee. And that's when everything was just, you know, everything flowed in the year of Jubilee. People who had debts, their debts were forgiven. People who lost their land, their land was restored to them. It represented restorations and miracles and Abundance like you've never had before. Pentecost was the 50th day. When God in his abundance pours out his Holy Spirit. So he says, sit them in rows of 50. So there's organization and the disciples are involved in that organization. Then you have multiplication. Look at verse 16. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish. He puts them in his hands. And looking up to heaven... He blessed and he broke them and he gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And guess what? They just multiply. We know that from other gospels. Everybody's fed. They just start with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. They just start multiplying. And everyone eats. This is a foretaste of the great kingdom banquet that's going to happen. Pastor Jeffress was talking about today. What's the kingdom like? It's just like this. A great banquet. And guess who's providing the food? Jesus. He's the benefactor. And you're the beneficiary. And you don't ever have to pay him back. And you get as much as you want, you see. What kind of people are at this banquet? All kinds. Remember, that's what the pastor was talking about. All kinds. Uh, you think that everybody in this crowd of 5,000 were all clean-cut, Sabbath-observing, synagogue-going <laughs> Jews? Hey, 
The poor people listened to Jesus. The outcasts listened to Jesus. The women listened to Jesus, which were second-class citizens in those days. The sick, the lame, how do we know that they're there? Because he's healed them. <laughs> Obviously, they were sick. These are people that are unclean. These are people who are ritually impure. And he feeds them all. That's a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like. They're getting just a little taste right now. And one day, it's going to be like that every day. Day. So we have multiplication. And then I want you to notice their satisfaction. Look at verse 17. And they all ate and were filled. Totally satisfied. There's a point where they just said, I can't eat another bite. <laughs> okay, one more bite. I'm just, oh, just filled. Very interestingly, back in chapter 1, in Mary's song, remember you had the uh, Elizabeth's song, and then you have Mary's song, and in Mary's song it says, and he shall feed the hungry. Fulfilled right here. Now, I believe that when this miracle happened, it had to bring to memory to the apostles another similar miracle. And I want to show it to you. Okay? Put your finger here, and I want you to turn it over to 2 Kings in chapter 4. 2 Kings in chapter 4. <clears throat> Lynn's grandfather, this was one of his favorite passages. And look down, when you get to 2 Kings 4, look down to verse 42, and it's about the prophet Elisha. And this will show you why some of the people thought that Jesus was like an Old Testament prophet, because he was doing all kinds of things like Old Testament prophets. He was healing people, doing all, raising people from the dead. But there was also a feeding miracle. 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 42. Then a man came from Baal, Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley cakes or barley bread. And those were just little loaves like, uh, just like rolls, you know? And newly wiped... Uh, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. And his servant said, What? Shall I set this before a hundred men? Twenty dinner rolls to feed a hundred men? He said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over, watch this, according to the word of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Now go back to chapter 9 of Luke. And look at verse 17. So they all ate, and they were filled, and there were twelve baskets of leftover garments which were taken up by them, based on the word of the Lord. You can take God at his word. He says he'll provide, he'll provide. If he says he'll do something, he will do something. Now let me give you three lessons okay, from this passage. 
Three lessons from this passage. Lesson number one, God cares for his people. And he meets their needs. It doesn't matter whether there's 12 of them or whether there's 5,000 of them. His resources aren't limited. He cares for all of his people. It doesn't matter whether they're the upper crust or whether they are the lower crust. Number two. He asks us in this passage, in a sense, to ask a question of ourselves. This question should cause us, this passage should cause us to ask a question. Are we willing to accept hospitality but not give hospitality? Many of us are takers. And we need to make certain that we're not only takers, that we don't only have enough faith to trust God to meet our needs through other people, through other people's generosity and hospitality. But we need to have the same kind of faith that when we have even little, that God will use it to meet other people's needs. Amen. Miraculously. Are we only takers of hospitality or are we givers of hospitality? And then, third, a question is posed in this section by Herod. Look at verse 9. After Herod said, John, I beheaded. And then he asked this question. Who is this? Who is this of whom I hear such things? Next week, that question is answered because if you look at verse 20, mm -hmm. Peter says, you are the Christ. So the question posed by Herod, who is this man of whom I hear, is answered by Peter in his great confrontation, his great declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there are lessons that we need to take with us. It's so easy for us, Lord, to be <clears throat> blinded to, our, to the reality. Uh, here were a group of men who had received hospitality, but a day later were willing to give it. And so often, Lord, we have blind spots in our own spiritual lives. Help us to examine ourselves and ask, are we following you in every area of our lives by faith? If not, Lord, help us open our eyes that we may see this and help us to not only act, speak on your behalf, but act on your behalf. Help us to act like Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.